I want to open the word with you in Exodus chapter 8. We've been in a series called Let My People Go. And it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord says. I'm going to say this again. I said it last week. It's really important to know what God says. I'm I'm just very interested in whatever he's saying. It says, this is what the Lord says. Let my people go. Right? We believe in freedom. We love freedom. But there is a reason. It says, let my people go so that they might worship me. Let my people go so that they may worship me. Can I tell you this? Is There is a reason that God sets us free. There's a purpose to our freedom, and it's so that we would worship him. I know some of you think like worship in the context of, man, I don't really like singing. I don't really like music. Worship is bigger than a song. It's bigger than music. Worship is the attitude of our heart that says whatever we do, we do as unto the Lord. So the Bible teaches us that when God set the people of Israel free, he set them free so that they could be an expression of worship and praise to him. And the truth is the same for us, is that the reason that God sets us free is so that with our lives, we can worship him. I, I want to I go to Exodus chapter 2. I want to back up a couple chapters because we read Exodus chapter 8, which is the famous words, Pharaoh, let my people go. How many saw Prince of Egypt? That was, let my people go. Over eight times, Moses comes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And we talked about this, but this is, this is interesting because you would think that if Pharaoh said it once, or if Moses said it once, that God would have showed up and set the people free. But Moses says it over and over and over again, which tells me this, God didn't act the first time he said it, which explains this to me, that freedom is more about persistence than it is permission. Someone's thinking, man, I don't know if it's God's will for him to heal me, if it's God's will to set me free, if it's God's will for, no, it's not about permission. God wants you free and free indeed. God wants you healed. God wants you full of his joy. God wants you full of his peace. In fact, I'm going to just propose this to you. It might be too early, but let me just say this. If you are not at peace, you are in bondage. All right, that's too much too soon probably. But I, I just want you to consider this because sometimes when we hear the word bondage, we say, oh, yeah, we know somebody. You know, you start thinking of your great uncle, you know, everyone has that uncle. You know, it's just, oh, yeah, he's, we're going to see him. Thanksgiving's coming up. He's in bondage. But I want you to think about bondage that any limitation to you experiencing joy, hope, if you're dreading tomorrow, you're in bondage. If you are caught in a rhythm, a habit, a behavior that you can't get out of, you are in bondage. Well, I like doing that. Well, if you can't get out of it, it's bondage. You can like it all you want. But if you can't get free from it, it's called bondage. And the reason that Jesus came was to forgive us of our sins, but to give us the power to be set free. So Christians should be the happiest, most peaceful, most loving, kind, blessed people on the planet. So I know what you're thinking. You're like, well, what's wrong? That was what I was asking. So I went back to Exodus chapter 2, and I I tried to look at what caused the people of God to get set free. 
What brought Moses on the scene to be a deliverer to the people of Israel? Exodus chapter 2, it says, During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, and God saw the, if you ever wondered if God saw you, sees you, God sees you. He saw the people of Israel, and the ESV says, and God knew. God knew their struggle. He knew their suffering. He knew their misery. But I think it's interesting that when God heard their cry, he responded by sending a deliverer. So this is, a, this is like Bible study question. Okay, see if we got any theologians in the room. How many years were the people of Israel in captivity at this point? Anybody? 400? Someone's like, 400? Four, 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 four. Jesus? Jesus is always the right answer in Sunday school, you know? It's like, no, it's amount of years. It's not a person. For, they were over 400 years. They've been in captivity. And the moment that their cry comes before God, God begins to work on their behalf. This, this messed with my mind a little bit because I was thinking, did they not cry out earlier? If, 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 the, if the time that God heard their cry was the time that God began to act, what happened over 400 years? Was God's freedom available and waiting on the other side of their cry? Was it, was it, were they not in bondage all of those years? Were they not in pain all of those years? And in fact, we see as soon as they cry out to God, the cry comes before God, and God begins, God begins to work for them. You know, it's interesting that the, the people of Israel were not always in captivity in Egypt. In fact, Joseph, if, if you read your Old Testament, Joseph ran to Egypt. He, be, he, got saved, he got sold into slavery. He became into Egypt. He became a ruler in Egypt. And the people of Israel moved to Egypt to escape a famine. So when they first came to Egypt, they were welcomed. But there was a, there was a tipping point where the people of Israel began to outnumber the people of Egypt. And when the people of Israel began to outnumber the people of Egypt, the Egyptians saw them as a threat. And because they had the potential to overtake the Egyptians, the Egyptians says, we have to enslave them. So the reason that Egypt enslaved Israel was because Israel had the ability to overtake, Israel, overtake Egypt. So they enslaved them to keep them from their potential. I want you to know this. The enemy knows your potential more than you do. And the reason that the Israelites were in captivity was not because they were weak. The reason the Israelites were in captivity is because the enemy saw potential in them. And I want you to know the reason that life fights you like it fights you. The reason that freedom seems out of grasp like it seems for you. The reason why it seems like these things are coming at you is not because you're doing something wrong. It's because the enemy can see your potential more than you can. That he realizes the destiny that's on your life and the ability to do damage to the kingdom of darkness. And he will realize it oftentimes before we do. Who the enemy fears, he fights. And when the Egyptians begin to fear the Israelites, they begin to fight them. I want to tell you this, when the enemy begins to fear the anointing that's on your life, 
the call of God that's on your life, he begins to fight you. You just thought life was against you. No, friend, God put something on the inside of you, and the enemy sees the damage it could do to his kingdom, and so he does everything he can to enslave you, to keep you in bondage. And if that bondage is just that you're afraid then he'll keep you there. If the bondage is that you're afraid of being hurt so you won't trust, he'll keep you there. If, if the bondage is a secret habit that nobody knows so you can sleep at night, then he'll keep you there. If the bondage is a secret habit to make you cope with the life that you have and the stressors that you have, then he'll keep you there. But anything that is helping you cope through this life or make it day to day that does not come from him is not true freedom. And whoever the enemy fears, he fights. I, I grew up with uh, three sisters and uh, a brother. There was five of us in a small house. And uh, we didn't have a lot of money. My dad was a pastor. And, uh, and we all shared one shower. All seven of us in the house, one shower. Three sisters, you heard that right. So that means you actually don't get a shower. So it's just like the hose for the boys and the girls cycle through, you know, by the hour. And, and, and that's, that's where we grew up. But my dad, was he always took good care of us. And we never really thought we were going without. And we're looking back, I'm thinking, man, we, didn't, we really didn't have a lot of money. We didn't have a lot of stuff. But my dad always took care of us. And he would make us repeat back to him. And uh, so he was indoctrinating us. He said, Dad will always take care of you. Say it. We'd be like, all five in chorus, Dad will always take care of us. And, uh, and, and he, they made it a priority for us to go on vacations, for us to do stuff together. And, uh, and, and when we went out to eat, it wasn't like, you know, everybody orders a happy meal or everybody. It's like we would order like a, like a meal and then everybody shares, you know, the, the, the meal. Like you get the fries you get the burger, you get the drink, and it's like, we went out today, because we didn't, we didn't really go out that much. Or, or back in the day, I don't know if anybody remembers this, McDonald's used to have 39 cent cheeseburgers. Anybody remember that? We fed our whole family for under $7. And everybody gets, everybody gets a cheeseburger and a water, you, you, you're good to go. But we, kinda, we, we grew up in that, but we never felt like we went without, because my dad would reemphasize over and over that dad will always Take care of you. I remember, I remember this so clearly. One, one day, I don't know what had happened. We had went through something, and something happened in the family, and, and we got in our van. That's the only thing we fit in. We got a big old van, and, and uh, we went through the drive through at Dairy Queen in our little city in Washington, Centralia, Washington, go through the drive through and I remember Dad said everybody got a blizzard. Well, we never did that. I mean, blizzards? Like dessert? You did that at home, homemade ice cream. You know, it's just like... Everybody's getting a blizzard. And so we're like pumped about it and they're doing the thing, you know, like, like I don't know why they do that to show you, like, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm wondering, yeah, it's just, anyway, so we, it was cool. It was like, all right, we got the blizzards and everybody's happy and we were about to pull out the drive through. My dad stopped and he turned around and he said, what do I always tell you? And we were like, in chorus, we knew exactly. Dad will always take care of us. At, at 10 years old, a blizzard feels like being taken care of. <laughs> Dad will always take care of us. Can, can I tell you this, that you serve a God who desires to be a shepherd, a father, a one who oversees. In fact, I think that God would love to hear from his children. We serve a God who will always 
take care of. I, I grew up with this trust in life and in people because I had a dad that said, I'll always take care of you. I, I grew up with not a lot of fear because I had a dad that said, I will always take care of you. And I trusted him. I believed him. And I believe this is God wants to awaken a realization and a revelation in the church to understand I have a God that will always take care of me. I can trust people. I can give. I can love because I have a God who will always take care of me. You know, to, to be able to say that is a declaration of trust. To be able to say, Dad will always take care of me. God will always take care of me. It means I have to trust him. I have to depend on him. I've been out of the house for quite some time now. And I don't very often call my dad and say, hey, dad, you said you'd always take care of me. Mortgage is coming up. <laughs> Gas prices are crazy. Right, because I'm, I'm, I'm out. I'm out of the house. I'm, 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 I, don't, I don't trust him for what I need anymore. I'm self-sufficient. You know what my fear is? That most Christians see God as the God who will take care of them in a season of their lives but there's a moment where they move out of the house and they feel like, I think I got it now. I have enough of God to feel safe, to have some element of faith, but I'm, I'm, I'm on my own. I'm taking care of me because I know I, I'm trusting me to take care of me. I'm trusting myself to take. Can I tell you this, that we've got to come back to a revelation of God as our Father and with a declaration saying God will take care of us. It's interesting that the people of Israel, they cried out to God. They cried out to God. That crying out to God, why didn't God answer for 400 years? And I want to propose this to you, that I don't think they cried out. I think it took 400 years of pain of bondage, of disappointment, before there was actually a cry from them that said, God help, because they had looked to other sources. Egypt in the past, when they had a famine, was their deliverer. And because Egypt was their deliverer in one season of their life, they continued to look for salvation from that same deliverer. And what God was trying to do was trying to allow situations and circumstances into their life so they would recognize that there is a greater deliverer, that they don't have to live a life under bondage or enslaved, but they can live a life of freedom. Bible says as soon as they groaned, God heard. As soon as they cried out, you know what it was? It was a declaration of trust. It was, it, it was a cry of trust saying, God, it's gotten this bad. We need, you know, that's how many of us are. Few, few people really cry out to God when things are good. In fact, people often wait so long before they cry out to God that things are, they, have, they are in dire straits. And then they're saying, all right, let's try God. God wants to be our Father. He wants to be our God. He wants to be in relationship, which is not just when things get bad, but that, that we have an element of trust that says our God will always take care of us. But the truth is, for many of us, we will never change until the pain of staying the same gets too great. 
We will never change. We'll never, we'll never change the way that we live or the way that we worship or the way that we pray. Change happens when the pain of staying the same becomes too great. It's interesting, verse 24, it says, and God heard their groaning. God heard their groaning. Do you, do you know that God hears not just your perfect prayers, but he hears the groaning of your own heart? It would make more sense to me if it said, and God heard their eloquent speech. Right, or God heard their elaborate prayer. God, God heard their groaning. God heard their mess. God heard, all it was was a transfer of trust from Egypt to God. But in that groaning where they said, man, this is bad. I need some." God heard it. You know, it's interesting. I have, I've got two boys, Jude and Genesis, and, and um, they're, they're like, they love to fight, wrestle, do all those things. And I'll come home from work and like, all right, WrestleMania. I'm like, man, this, whew. you know, after four hours, you know, you just get a little tired of getting hit in the face. And, 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 and they'll wrestle each other, you know, and throw things. And, and, and you, you always hear these noises, right? You hear screams from the kids. And uh, it, it's interesting. Jamie can always tell. She's an incredible mom. She can always tell what the scream means. So I'll hear it. I'm like, oh, they're fighting. She's like, they're fine. They're laughing. I'm like, hey, sound, sound pretty serious to me. <laughs> There'll be another scream. And she's like, oh, no, they're in pain. I'm like, that sounded like the, the other one. And the other, the other day we were, we were doing so. I was in the garage working, and, and uh, Taylor, Jamie's sister, ran out. She says, Jamie, need you upstairs right now. It's serious. I'm like, what? So I ran in the house, ran upstairs, and Genesis, my youngest, had, they had been play fighting and had ran and jumped and landed on his iPad charger. And both prongs went into his foot. I'm not good with any type of thing like that, so I'm like... Someone needs to deal with this. I will hold your hand and you need to blindfold me because I don't want to pass out. And he, he screamed. Now, now when, when I heard the scream, it sounded like every other scream. But when Jamie heard the scream, she knew this is serious. Go get Dustin. This is, this is serious. Can I tell you this? God knows the tone of your own cry to know when it's serious and when it's not. He knows what's religion and he knows what's desperation. God knows the tone of your cry. It says he heard their groaning. God was moved. It was as if they lifted up a cry, and probably for many of them said, well, we've been crying for years. We've been crying for generations, but God knew when the trust went from Egypt to him, he said, my people are calling. There's somebody that's crying out to me. And friends, I'm going to tell you this. It's the cry of a desperate heart that begins to move the hand of God. If you want God's hand in your business, if you want God's hand in your family, then you are going to have to change your allegiance and trust to you getting it done to saying, God, I need you. The groans of the people were an invitation for God to step into the situation. It's the cry of desperation that both displays our trust in God and initiates the working of his hand. Psalm 34, 17 says this, The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them. Anybody that's ever been to a Pentecostal prayer meeting, you've heard people cry out, right? It's like the, the, the people cry out, but it's not, it's not done there. It's just the righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them. Do you know that you don't have to be polished for God to hear you? You don't have to be perfect for God to hear you. 
You just need to have a pure desire for God to hear you. And it's the desperation of the people of God that will begin to move the hand of God on your behalf. People say, I don't think we got to be desperate, Pastor. I'm, not, I'm in the new covenant. I'm not into striving. And, and I'm going to tell you this. Desperation is not trying to convince God to do something he doesn't want to do. Desperation is a mirror, is a revealer of your heart. Desperation says, God, I trust you. I believe. I'm not trying to get God to do something. I am trying to display to God, I'm serious. You're my God. I'm your people. And I need you. God heard their groans. He heard their cries. And then immediately it says, and God remembered his covenant. And our text it says, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Let me, let me just ask you, what was the covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? What was, what was that promise? Because we have the people of Israel in captivity for over 400 years. All of a sudden, Things got worse, they cried out to God, and God remembered a promise that he had made to them. What was the promise? The promise was that he would be their God and they would be his people. That he would bless them, that he would increase them, and they would serve him and worship him. It was, it was two parts. It was a covenant that was made with God and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So when the people cried out in trust, God remembered his promise. So there's something about us trusting God, and there's something about us crying out to God that reminds God, oh yeah, I made a promise with them. I was praying this morning, and this, this reality just overtook me in, in understanding that I'm not trying to talk God into setting me free. I'm not trying to convince him to do something. He has to work on my behalf because he made a covenant with me. A covenant is a promise. A covenant is not something just broken just because you don't feel good one day. A covenant, he, he, if he is who he says he is, then he is bound to his covenant promise that when he hears my cries, he responds. I know for many of us we think, well, oh yeah, God will just do what I want him to do. No, he didn't promise he's going to do what we want him to do. He says, I'll be your God. We say you'll be, we, we will be your people. And his covenant was not that we would never walk through trouble. It wasn't a promise that we would never go through difficult times. It was a promise that wherever we went, that God would be with us. That when you go into crisis, he's with you. When you go into stressful situations, he's with you. When you go through ups and downs, he's with you. When you go through trials, he's with you. The Bible teaches us in Isaiah, whether you go through the water or you go through the fire, you will not drown, you will not be burned. He said, for I will be with you. It says there's going to be fire and there's going to be water, but he will be with us. Friends, when there is a cry of trust from the people of God, God is bound by his own word to begin to act in your defense. People say, oh, well, I don't know, pastor. I, I, I think I'm just going to kind of wait for God. You can keep on waiting, but God waits for you. God moved when he sent Jesus. Now he waits for us. You know, the Bible says, draw near to me, who's first? And I will draw near to you. You know how many people wait 
in church for God to draw near to them. People go to church all their lives waiting for God to draw near to them. And he spelled it out so simply. He said, if you draw near to me, I will draw near to you. God remembered his covenant. God's covenant promise is blessing, not bondage. So any area of my life, I feel bondage, stuck, not free in. I need to remind God of his promise, and he will work on my behalf. Isaiah 49 Verse 14 says, but Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. Have you ever felt forsaken? It says, the Lord has forgotten me. You ever felt forgotten? This is what God said. This is God's response. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Listen, listen to this. This is crazy. When you cry out to God, God remembers his covenant. He has your name engraved on the palms of his hands that when he hears the cries of his people, he says, oh, I am their God. They are my people. I am bound to work on their behalf. And this is verse 25. It says, and God saw the people of Israel. And this is what this means. God saw their suffering. He didn't just see them like you saw somebody walk by and like, I, I saw them. He saw them, and the actual definition of this word means not to look on to observe, but to look on to intervene. And I want you to hear me today, is that God is looking at your life, your struggles, your difficulties, and he's not observing, yeah, that's bad. Yeah, you got it rough. Good luck out there, man. He looks on to intervene in. So the reason that God sees it is so he's looking for an opportunity. How can I show myself strong? How can I show up? How can I develop them? How can I expose Christ in them? How can I be strong for them? God's looking for the opportunity to show himself strong. Psalm 94 verse 7. It says, and they say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. This was their complaint to God. It says, understand, O dullest of the people. This almost kind of gets offensive every once in a while. Fools, when will you be wise? I think if we just preach like that, just calling people names. Just, he who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? This is God's response to them. Hey, you think I don't see you? I made your eyes. You think I don't hear you? I'm the one that made your ears. I'm, I'm the one that created the ability to hear. I'm the one that created the ability to see. You think I don't have that same ability? No, I see your suffering. I hear your groanings. And I am working on your behalf. I know for some of you, you feel like, man, I've been in this for a while. Does God see me? Does God hear me? I'm going to tell you this. I don't understand God's timetable or God's methodology. But I know God's word. And God's word says, I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. You have a God that is going to take care of you, stand beside you, love you, and deliver you. And deliver you. 
Today is just a simple reminder of three things. God hears my cry. God sees my suffering. And God delivers me from my bondage. If you, if you don't take anything away, take this away. When you leave today, write it down somewhere, put it in your notes. Somewhere. God sees me. He hears me. And he delivers me. And any area that life has tried to get you just to settle for, refuse to settle for less than the very best that God has for you. Bondage is an attempt to keep you at a low place of living and not experience the fullness of life that comes from life in Christ Jesus. When you get set free, it's not just so that you can get free of one thing. It's so that you can experience the fullness of life. The reason why you don't want to live, the reason why you don't have hope for tomorrow, the reason why you don't have vision is not because you're bad. It's because bondage tries to get us to settle for less than the thing that God has for us. And when you taste of God's freedom, you begin to dream. You begin to have vision. You're filled with joy. You're filled with God's peace. You're God filled with God's hope. God hears my cry. He sees my suffering. And he delivers me from my bondage. I want to ask you if you would to stand up all across this place. I remember years ago, I, I was really young, my teenage years, but I, I struggled with an anger problem, just a terrible temper, just doing, if you ever see somebody with a temper, it's like you can see it from the outside, like how stupid they look. If you're the person with the temper, like, we don't, we don't understand that. It's just like you're in it, and you don't understand. You don't even care that you're beating up your own car that you're going to have to fix. It's like, that, that was me. My dad came out one time, and I'm just bashing on my own car, and he's like, are you an idiot? Like, you're going to have to fix that. But I was lost in it. Times when I get really mad, it just, it's just like I felt like, and I told him, I can't help it when I feel like this. You know what I realized? I'm not trying to super spiritualize everything, but I'm going to tell you, I had a bondage of anger. It didn't have to look like demons and craziness. It's just a, a place where the enemy keeps me tethered from, limb, from reaching my full potential. But can I tell you something? Jesus set me free from anger. I don't lose my temper anymore. I don't bash my own car anymore. I bash other, no, sure. I learned my lesson. I don't, I'm not doing that anymore. I got set free. I was at a point at 17 years old, I felt like it was, I couldn't help it. I couldn't stop it. But Jesus set me free. I, I, I use that example just to say this. It could be something for you that you just think is a byproduct of the way you grew up or it's a byproduct of the stressful life you've had. And I'm just here to remind you that you don't have to settle for what life has tried to give to you because it could be limiting you from reaching the very best that God has for you. So maybe have the audacity and the courage to say, God, you said you'd always take care of me. So I'm going to trust you. And God will hear the tone of your cry change from I'm taking care of me to God, will you take care of me? And then he's bound by covenant to begin to work on your behalf.